0: This episode is brought to you by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, the only study Bible built on biblical theology. Marvel at the big story and savor every detail. Learn more at www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Hey, brother, do you still
1: believe
0: in one another?
1: Hey, Welcome to episode 103 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
0: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Down for you. In this world I do. Oh. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What up? How are you today?
1: I'm feeling great. I'm ready to get into some great conversation, and I'm ready for a little affirmation and denial action as... An amuse-bouche, if you will.
0: You know, that's the second time you've said amuse-bouche on this podcast, and I still am not 100% sure what it means. I've seriously said that before, and you remembered? Yeah, and I remember we had the same conversation about me not knowing what it means. Isn't it like (laughs) the little thing you eat before something?
1: Yes, that's exactly by definition (laughs) what it is. I think it's like a single bite. I think if I had better understanding of French, I think it's like, single party for your mouth. I don't know.
0: Single party for your mouth.
1: <laughs> I want to affirm like
0: that. that explanation right there. <laughs> well, that's great. So why don't we get into it? What do you, what do you affirm in this week?
1: So I'm always trying to find ways to be a little bit more productive. And I came across a very interesting article, which I think just kind of confirms stuff that we've talked about before, but I'm affirming this concept of trying to increase the effic- efficacy if I can say that word, of your memorization by doing nothing. So apparently, the best way to learn something and then to memorize it is to spend some concentrated time focusing on memorizing and then go just do nothing for 10 minutes. Like literally just sit down, close your eyes, relax, not focus on what you were just doing, don't look at your phone to check your email don't even go for a walk, just don't do anything. And apparently this, scientists have have shown that this basically helps to like connect the neural pathways in your brain and helps cement the information, which is allegedly why when you study something right before you go to bed, you're more likely to remember it and for it to be more crisp and clear in your memory. So they've done this, all these kinds of studies that have shown even with people with compromised neural conditions, like those with Alzheimer's or dementia, that by doing this actually pushes back the advancement of those diseases. So I've been trying this out and I can say that I think it, there is something to it. I was super skeptical. It's just more difficult to take 10 minutes and to chill and relax, like not meditate, not try to do anything funky. It's literally just don't do anything. Yeah. And not only has that been good because it's forced me to relax and pull away from stuff. So, you know, like study for like 50 minutes because I'm working on some stuff for work and then try to take 10 minutes to just chill. So it's been super relaxing, but it has actually really helped with kind of increasing my memory, my ability to recall information. So I'm affirming nice. that. It's, it's helpful.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Try it. How about you? So this, uh, this affirmation comes with a little bit of a story. So I'm affirming pneumatology, but not the way that you think. So I just recently, <laughs> you've heard this story. This is great. But I just recently started a new job uh, as the administrative supervisor over the sections of gastroenterology and pulmonary medicine. And so, pulmonary medicine is the study, uh, or is the medical field that deals with like breathing. Palaos is the Greek word for lung. So I'm in one of my first, like my first getting to know you meetings with like the section chief and like a couple of doctors and some of the nurses and my manager. And I say I was saying something about like introducing myself, and I said I'm very excited to be joining the section of pneumatology. <laughs> and everybody looked around the room kind of kind of like what did he just say and i heard it come out of my mouth immediately and and one of the doctors says what i'm sorry pneumatology what is that and so I start to try to, like, explain to them what pneumatology is. So I'm like, well, it's the study of the Holy Spirit and, like, the study of, like, the gifts of the Holy Spirit falls under there. And I realize that it is very difficult to explain what pneumatology is <laughs> to non-Christians without sounding like a crazy charismatic uh, snake handler. True. So I kind of backed up a little bit and I was like, well, it's a sub-discipline of what I did my graduate work in and Palmas means lung and pneuma means breath, so the words are very closely associated. And it was okay. And they thought it was kind of funny and charming. Um, but yeah, I, I am pretty sure I turned bright rat. I was really embarrassed at first.
1: That's great. That's a mind focused on some theology right there.
0: Yeah. And I said, I said at the end, after I kind of explained it, I said, this is not the only time this is going to happen because these, these words are too closely associated in my mind for this not to happen again in the future.
1: When you told me this story, I envisioned it totally different. Yeah. So what I envisioned happened is you you said pneumatology and they're like, what is that? And then basically like second Pentecost happens. You were like this Jesus whom you crucified, and then I was like,
0: let me show boom. you <laughs> tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. I started speaking in Greek.
1: Yeah. There and the Lord added from the pulmonary department many <laughs> that day.
0: Yeah. Nothing like that. So what about your denial, Jesse? What are you denying? That just brought us straight down. It did. It's all good.
1: (laughs) So this week I made a confession to my wife and I want to make the same confession to you. And my sincere hope is that you're going to actually also do the same thing that I'm confessing to you. But I'm a little bit dubious that maybe I'm the only one. So I read a lot of books from the library. I love our library. I guess that's an affirmation. Go get a library card at your local library and support it. And I've noticed that over time, I'm not sure where I picked up this habit, but when I get a library book and most of the library books I get end up, they're hardcover and they're then enwrapped in that plastic, you know, kind of sleeve. Yeah. I find that within the first several hours of having the book in my possession, I actually get some counter cleaner and a rag and I clean them and then they're all shiny and they feel nice just because they're like they're dirty and they're yeah they're gross and sticky. Do you ever do that?
0: I can't say that I ever have <laughs> but it's also been a long time since uh. I've checked a like a like a physical book out of the library so. I, our local library has like that ebook swap where you can sign into Which like is the nice. e-book thing. So I have a library card and I utilize the library, but it's because I, I check out a lot of like electronic books. Right, but so I can definitely see books. that as a thing you should do because those library books, sometimes they're really gross.
1: Yeah, they're pretty gross. I mean, so your wife checks out books in the library. Does she do it?
0: Uh, I don't think so. But if I mentioned it to her, she probably would start doing it. So I'll, I'll definitely mention it to her.
1: So I'm kind of denying against the dirtiness of library books i'm not necessarily saying that like we should expect our librarians to wipe them down yeah but i wouldn't be opposed to that you know like they come in just i mean i guess you, you have to shelve a lot of books so to yeah. wipe them down is a lot of extra work so maybe this is more of a recommendation for you will be super happy if you just take like two seconds to wipe those bad boys down they're gonna look pristine they're gonna look so good and then they it's like the bottom of baby's butt like they just feels so smooth <laughs> that plastic is so disgusting so once you clean off all that stuff you're just holding this like super smooth book it's just so satisfying
0: yeah you know you remember like when you used to rent video cassettes from like blockbuster and they, sure. they had that little sticker on them that was like please be kind and rewind Sure. we need to come up with a like a little <laughs> motto that's like please um, be something and wipe off the book and wipe, uh, off I, well, poet, wipe off the so book. I'm not a poet, so we'll have to we'll have to work on the rhyming scheme for that. But right, yeah, they should have little like so. Like when you go to the pet store, they have like little cleanup stations for if your dog has an accident on the floor. Yeah. They should have like little wipe stations at the bookstore. That's or at true. The, at the library for that. That's a good
1: idea. Like those little wipes.
0: I'm going to suggest that to my librarian next time I see them to yeah, ha- ha- have something at the checkout counter so Once you can again. just wipe it off before you leave or when you drop it off.
1: Yeah, once again, the podcast has birthed an exceptional idea.
0: We can revolutionize public library. Something, something. <laughs> <Finish> <laughs> All the ideas
1: super ambiguous. Yes. So, how about you? You got some kind of uh, great denial this
0: week? So this is one part denial and one part interactive activity. So I was looking for something in our Reform Brotherhood email the other day. Um, I think it was a a password or a a confirmation link to one of the services we use and I couldn't find it. So what's the first thing that you always do when you can't find something in your email that you're looking for is you go to the spam folder to make sure it didn't end up there. Sure. And what I noticed, and I don't know why, um, because my personal email address doesn't have this, but there's an inordinate amount of phishing emails in our (laughs) spam folder. So I would just like to read a few of these.
1: Yes, please.
0: Um, so this one here says, "It's from Michael." Uh, it says, "Dear," or it says, "Hello, dear." That's the subject line. <laughs> With due respect, I know that this mail will come to you as a surprise, as we have never met before. But I need not. I, but need not to worry, as I'm contacting you independently of my investigation, and no one is informed of this communication. I need your urgent assistance in transferring the sum of $11.3 million immediately to your private account. <laughs> the money has been here in our bank lying dormant for years now without anybody coming for the claim of it. Of course. I want to release the money to you as a relative of our deceased customer, the account owner, who died along with his supposed next of kin since 16th October 2005. Super tragic. The banking law here does not allow such money to stay more than 13 years, because that's how banks work. (laughs) Because the money will be recalled to the bank treasury account if unclaimed fund, because that's how money works. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go on and says, best regard. I Actually, looking at this this name, it looks familiar to me. So it may be that somebody's email account got hacked, so I'm not going to read the name. Um, But his name also is... Uh, similar to a Star Wars villain, which uh, tickled my fancy a little bit. Interesting. Uh, here's another one. This one's really good. We're, we're really important. This one demonstrates how worldwide significant we are. It says, From Dr. Abdullah Althani, Dear sir slash madame, it's really nice to come across your email contact from International Business Directory. Then I decided to contact you hoping that meeting you here will be a good step for a beautiful future business relationship and a partnership with a Capital P under your management. I'm open I am to this. Dr. Abdullah Al-fani from Libya, All Caps. I was former Minister of Defense and Prime Minister of Libya. I resigned as prime minister on 11 August 2015 after I escaped an assassination attempt by gunmen. After my resignation, I ran down to London, United Kingdom, as opposed to like <laughs> London, <laughs> New Hampshire, for security reasons. Read more at edition.cnn.com article. Furthermore, due to the problems in my country Libya, I find it necessary to diversify my investments outside my country to be or to safeguard against the future of my family. Why would you safeguard against the future of your family? Meanwhile, I am contacting you to seek your assistance in transferring my deposited fund accounting amounting 20 million US dollars. I'm planning to invest under your management in your country when I come over after you have confirmed the fund in your custody. Uh, also, Dr. Abdullah's email is drabdullah4 at gmail.com. <laughs> so I'm sure that the former prime minister and Defe- minister of defense of Libya has a Gmail account. Uh, so uh, let's see. There's one here that's uh, beloved. That one's nice. Dearest. These These spammers are so, like affectionate it's really surprising to me
1: yeah they are really quite loving i noticed that the amount in each of these emails is escalating so we're getting better and better deals which is good
0: it's true these spammers have an unlimited source of wealth apparently
1: let's just think about what kind of podcast we could make with 20 million dollars the thing is it probably wouldn't be any better but it might be
0: a lot more fun we'd have better toys (laughs) that's true We'd probably pay someone to make our website for us. That would probably be good. That would
1: probably be better.
0: I would hire someone to write show notes because that's the worst part of any podcaster's job.
1: That's true. We are horrible at show notes.
0: Yeah. Um also there's this one that came to me that looks like it's entirely in like Czechoslovakian or something like that.
1: That's fantastic. I love that somebody's reaching yeah. out for quote unquote partnership. Our mutual customer. I don't know who that mutual yeah. customer is.
0: Yeah, we don't we don't have any customers. <laughs> Here's one. Greetings to you. My name is uh, Mavis Wenzik, the winner of the Powerball jackpot of dollar sign space dollar sign seven five eight (laughs) point seven million in the August twenty fourth, two thousand seventeen. I don't see how this is
1: not verifiable and legit. Yeah,
0: I mean this this is just my foundation is donating eight hundred thousand dollars to you. So uh, Mavis Wenzik, uh, you can just send that straight to our PayPal account, which yes. we have set up and uh, we'll be very grateful for that.
1: Yes. Thank so my, you, Mavis.
0: My recommendation this week based on this denial is to go into your spam folder and read some of these ridiculous emails because they're pretty funny.
1: And if ever you feel alone in the world, like nobody knows you, nobody cares for you, nobody loves you, there's probably a great spam message waiting for you yeah. to cheer you up. Give you that sense of value, which really should only come from the Lord. But if you need a little extra. Yeah. There's somebody in Libya probably that's ready to make a partnership with you. (laughs) That's going to call you beloved. Yes. Really give you that sense of belonging.
0: Yes. My dear. My dear. My dear.
1: (laughs) I'm just going to start using that. Actually, that's a great idea. I wonder if I would get better response rates at work if I just started emails with... Dear Beloved. Dear Beloved. Here are the reports you requested.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dear Beloved, we need to talk about your attendance issues. <laughs> really Dearly Beloved, off. we are gathered here today to have this staff meeting. <laughs> uh, I could do this all day. We could just know, read these the, emails all day.
1: The, this is great. We will have to do that sometime on like a kind of an adjunct podcast.
0: Yeah. So Jesse, tonight... We are talking about Christian liberty.
1: Yeah. Give me some of
0: that liberty. So uh, we're going to talk about all the things that I want to do and that people have told me not to do, and uh, (laughs) they can just stick that in their pipe and smoke it.
1: So this is a six-hour cast. I love it. Let's
0: do it. No. Really, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the Westminster Confessions Perspective on Christian liberty and how that applies kind of to our life and to our sanctification. So I'm excited because this is a topic that in circles that you and I run in, particularly me and the Reform Pub, the topic of Christian liberty can be kind of a sort of a hot topic right. um, because everybody's trying to understand what what is Christian liberty, how how much liberty we have, what kind of liberty do we have? Um, and then the kind of ever present question of well what about the weaker brother so i want to talk about all those things tonight Um, but i want to start out just by kind of taking a look at in a kind of a broad picture the way that the Westminster Confession talks about Christian liberty. And so it's chapter 20, but it's important to understand that chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, which is the chapter on the law of God. So, so those who would look at this topic and talk about Christian liberty as though it somehow, it means we're free from obligations to God's law. They're definitely not representing the Westminster, uh, the the reformed tradition in the the reformed confessional tradition. So, So um, what are your thoughts before we get into the confession? What what are your thoughts on Christian liberty and how have you seen it kind of discussed out in the, the wild world?
1: I'm glad that you brought this up because I think this is particularly relevant to the Reformed community because Christian liberty and the Reformed tradition are tightly coupled And what I've seen is with the resurgence of Reformed theology, there has come a rediscovery of the doctrine of Christian liberty. And this is just borne out. If you look over all the kind of Reformed mediums, just over like the last five years or maybe a little bit longer back, you're seeing even like the Reformed pub is a good example of this. It's basically based on a a kind of a facet of Christian liberty, and that is the right and freedom to consume alcohol and to do so in a way that doesn't impinge the Christian witness, but actually in some ways empowers it. And that's kind of true across this broad spectrum of all kinds of different little tiny facets of reformed theology and presenting reformed theology so i think it's super important i'm with you and i think this is the kind of thing that we're going to find as we discuss this that we're going to approach it from a somewhat different angle but i think a truer angle and that most of the time i see this talked about in relief that is the things that we can or cannot do And so the doctrine is super important for spiritual growth and health because, you know, Paul succinctly puts it in Galatians 5 that for freedom, Christ has set us free. So we should stand firm and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And there are many yokes that well-intentioned people try to put on believers, but it usually comes in the form of, well, here are the things that you must do or here are the things that you should not do if you want to be pleasing to the Lord. And certainly this is not new because the first century Christians – they had this same problem. That's basically what spurred the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But it all comes back to what are the things that we have to do in order to be holy? And so, again, right. I see most of this conversation in relief, as in, well, Christians don't do this, or Reformed Christians do this, and they do this thing in everybody's face because they're pushing back against those Christians who say, you don't do this. Right. So I don't often see it except in the case of... Trying to understand which behaviors, not even attitudes, but which behaviors we should or shouldn't do to promote a sense of holiness.
0: Yeah, and I think you know it bears saying. We'll get into the the specifics here, but there is an element, and you're exactly right, that the, the rediscovery of Calvinism, kind of by this um, resurgent generation, kind of people who are now in sort of their early 30s, mid 30s, um, it, it did largely center around. Liberty of um, things like alcohol or even things like dating or h- how we dress or what kinds of sure. things we watch on TV. And I can remember at least that, um, you know, when I was coming up through youth group, you know, when I became a Christian, I threw out all my Magic the Gathering cards because that's it says magic on it. And like the idea that, like, we would, I can't believe you would ever even consider drinking a beer. Um, I remember distinctly, I heard about an interview. Where uh, Kevin Smith from DC Talk had an interviewer over to his his house for some sort of interview related to a new album they were putting out, and he offered the guy a beer, and that somehow made its way into the article, and everybody was so like shocked and aghast by that.
1: Scandalous.
0: And so there's a reaction to that kind of um, legalistic application. Um, Things like purity culture, which don't hear me wrong. Like purity is good. Purity should be strived after. But purity culture is a whole different, um, in a lot of ways, is a whole different kind of thing. and implies a standard that's in some ways even beyond or or contrary to God's law regarding how we think about ourselves. Um, But... If that's all that you ever do when you're talking about Christian liberty, if that's the furthest you go, that's actually a really shallow understanding of what right. we're to talk about. So the freedom to drink a beer or to smoke a cigar or to get a tattoo, yes, those are you have the freedom to do those things lawfully. But if that's all you're ever doing to exercise your liberty in Christ is, is drinking a beer, then you're, you're totally missing out on the whole point of Christian liberty. So I want to I wanna talk about that, but I want to skip, not skip, I want to get past that in today's conversation yes. to kind of the fuller sense of what the Reformed tradition understands when it talks about liberty.
1: And this is why it's so pernicious, because we've talked about this before. The problem with looking at liberty in this one-dimensional way is that you end up having conversations that get distracted. So we've at length talked about the Pence or the Billy Graham rule. And to me, that's an example of, in some ways, totally misunderstanding Christian liberty and just getting stuck in a single dimension of talking about imposing some kind of rule or structure without getting to the root. And I think what we want to talk about is like the root of Christian liberty. yeah. Not necessarily like the little nuances of, of exercising it, though those are important, but if you get the root right, then I think you're going to have a better sense of what it means to actually then take into account and actively pursue Christian liberty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So why don't, um, if you have chapter, do you have chapter 20 up of the confession in front of you?
1: Oh, you know, I do. I always got you- the confession up in front of me.
0: Why don't you go ahead and read uh, article one, <laughs> All or right, paragraph so one
1: paragraph one of chapter 20 on, of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. It reads the liberty, which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from guilt of sin The condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, the everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of.
0: Yeah, so this is such a, just a great way to to set up what it means for a Christian to be free, because what the confession here is doing is that whole first, like there's like fit, like probably six or seven things that it lists that were free. Oh, probably more than that, like 10 things that were free of. And basically what they're saying is that Christian liberty is liberty of salvation. So we're free from bondage to sin, guilt of sin, condemning wrath of God, all these things that are present upon us um, that we're bound to prior to our justification and our, our unity with Christ, our union with Christ, we're free from those things. So, so often, as we said, reformed discussions of Christian liberty can get so wrapped up in what can I do? What can I not do? What's, what's possible for me? What can I enjoy? That we po- totally blow past the fact that because of what Christ did, we no longer have to fear the grave. We no longer have to feel the sting of death. We no longer have to face the threat of eternal damnation. And then on top of that, we have a freer access to the throne of God. Um, So this part I think is really important here is that they they make the point here that all of these things were common to believers under the law. So sometimes we look at Christian liberty and we look at the book of Galatians or we read Acts 15 and we think that what it's saying is that Christians now have the liberty to do certain things that the Old Testament believers didn't. And there's an element of that that's true. But the things that we think about primarily in terms of Christian liberty, which is like freedom from extra biblical ceremonies, which we'll we'll get to, or freedom to engage in things that are not explicitly forbidden in Scripture um, in terms of our daily lives, not in terms of worship, but in terms of our daily life. um, Those are things that Old Testament believers enjoyed as well. Right. So it's it's important for us to remember that the, the basic substance of our freedom is about freedom from sin, death, and the devil. It's freedom from the bondage that comes because of sin. And the Old Testament believers had that. They had freedom from that. Um, maybe not to the same uh, subjective expression that we do, but they had th- that substantive freedom from those things as well.
1: And this is what's, there's a little bit of like irony here for me, at least, because I read this and I think this just resonates so clearly with our common human experience. Because if you right. sit with a believer, even if you sit with an unbeliever and you really ask them, what does freedom mean to you? And you start to tease that out. I think what you're going to find nine times out of 10 or hundred percent of the time is that somebody is going to express that for them, freedom doesn't mean they want to be able to do something, but to be released from something. Right. You know, I want to be freed from sin. I want to be freed from my being enslaved to behaviors and attitudes, which I know to be destructive. That's what we really desire. It's not so much that we want to be able to go do this thing that we think we cannot do. It's that we'd like to be released and to be liberated, basically, to live an abundant life. And so I think the divines here, they just really articulate this so well. And then they pull in this wonderful sense that we get greater boldness of access. And I think that's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the gift giving is this idea that, yes, you could have this freedom in the Old Testament, but in all honesty, in the final analysis, it required a lot more work. It required a sense of obedience that we just could not uphold. And so by the grace of Jesus Christ through his sacrifice and his perfect obedience in living, we get this greater boldness of access, but it's the same type of freedom. But what a blessing to live on this side of the cross, such that it's really given to us in its entirety as a gift from our elder brother who suffered in our place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's key is that our freedom is not a freedom from something, I mean, it's freedom from sin, freedom from the consequences of sin, but it's a freedom in something. We're free in Christ. We're free in the spirit. So it's, it's not this idea that somehow we've got out from underneath this oppressive thing. It's that we are now free because of who we are united to, and right. so you know you have we've used this analogy a bunch of times that you know if some random dude walks into our house and goes into our fridge and starts eating our food, I'm going to call the police and we're going to have an altercation, but if if someone walks in with my wife, you know a, a person from work walks in from with my wife, and and opens the refrigerator door and and grabs a soda or something to drink that's totally a different scenario. And so we're free from, um, sin and death and the devil, but we're only free from those things because we are being defended by the person we're united with. And that's really, really key to understanding Christian liberty is that the freedom we have is a freedom that was fought for and won and purchased by Christ.
1: I like that because I think it's important to emphasize that we're not sneaking out from underneath like this overhang, this dark cloud of the law. If anything, we're actually getting in deeper, aren't we? Through Christ, we're getting in so deeply that the, our, his obedience is ours. Right. And so it's, that's a totally different perspective because you're right. A lot of time, I think we often get this perspective that the great news of the New Testament is like the law is over with. It's totally done. We don't need to, let's not even talk about it. Don't even think about it. It's so outlandish and outmooted. And that of course is the root of all kinds of heresy and all kinds of problems. Like those who generally subscribe to that kind of view, whether it's strict antinomianism or something else, do usually end up shipwrecking their lives, if not their faith, because they come to this perspective that it doesn't matter anymore. What I think we're basically saying is it matters all the more, but because we're in Christ and he has obeyed the law. It's we don't even need to worry about getting out from underneath it because we've just ob- obeyed it completely, and now we have the freedom because we have been obedient.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, why don't we go ahead? I'm going to go ahead and read um, paragraph two. It says, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also so this this gets into that sort of that realm that we talk about ordinarily when we talk about christian liberty is that there is a freedom from man-made restrictions on our activities. So um, so much so that to obey these kinds of commands out of conscience is actually to betray liberty. So right. an example would be, and this is kind of a classic example, but let's say that I go to a Christian college and the Christian college says, drinking alcohol is a sin, therefore you must not drink alcohol. It's actually, at least if I'm reading this right, it's actually a betrayal of liberty, betrayal of liberty of conscience to abide by that and to submit myself to that rule. Now, that's not the same as like Gordon Conwell Seminary, where I went to school, said, we don't allow you to have alcohol on campus. That was primarily because of insurance regulations and costs. They couldn't afford the insurance premium they would have had to pay if they allowed their students to have alcohol on campus. They said nothing at all about whether it was a sin to drink outside of school. Um, And we frequently did theology discussions at the pub with our professors. So there's a difference in those two scenarios, but this could extend to something like if someone at at church is pressuring you to dress a certain way and trying to make it seem like somehow you're not, um, you're not really breaking God's law, but you know, maybe you should, you should give him your best. Well, that it's actually a betrayal of your liberty it to submit yourself to that. So there's some conversation that can be had about the difference between like the weaker brother and and this kind of scenario. Because those two things are not at all the same. And at times we treat them like they are.
1: I'm really glad you centered on that because when I, I was looking also the LBC um focuses on the same thing, and I found that sentence really profound, actually, because yeah. It's far more mature and deeper than we we often talk about this subject in. And so the second London Baptist Confession of Faith reads the same way. It has that sentence, so believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. That's a crazy thought, right? Like what you're saying is this idea that... If you impose on your conscience, this rule that somebody gives you, even if the rule is well-intentioned, what you're actually inadvertently doing is you're betraying that good conscience that you're trying to create. And I came across, I was reading, I think just in my personal study, uh, Colossians, and came across Colossians 2, which is kind of well-known in the context of this discussion. And I was like really undone by this verse because for whatever reason, it, it hit me. And now we're talking about this. So let me just read Colossians two twenty through 23, which I think is relevant to what you're saying. So Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And yeah. so I think maybe what we're driving at here, or at least maybe the divines we're driving at, is this sense that the betrayal of the con- conscience here basically shows that we are not stopping the indulgence of the flesh, that to just create right. these rules such that it gives us the appearance or even the internal comfort that we are, are not even if meritoriously earning our salvation, but just that we're becoming more holy or that we're more pleasing to God. That is the betrayal. And so yeah. we, I mean, I do this all the time. And, and those verses hit me like a ton of bricks, just this idea of are you doing things that give the appearance of wisdom when you're not actually seeking after that true freedom which is based in the full counsel of God's word as opposed to just creating all these little rules around it. I mean, does that make sense? It
0: it does. And and one of the things that I think is um, really key here is that along with this um, statement is the necessity of reading and understanding the scriptures for yourself. So they're saying, um and we'll get to the last clause of this here in a second but what they're saying is that if someone tells you something is a sin and you obey them and it is not in fact a sin to do right, that right you are sinning in obeying them yes. so whether you drink alcohol or not is beside the point but if you don't drink alcohol because somebody told you it was a sin then you're sinning by not drinking alcohol because you think it's a sin. And so you have a responsibility to study the scriptures and weigh against the scriptures what people are saying. So you should then come to the scriptures and see that from the scriptures drinking alcohol is not a sin, and then you should resist this man-made obligation that's being imposed on you. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you decide you drink alcohol. It may be as simple as saying, "I have the freedom to do so and I'm not going to I'm still not going to do it." But that can apply to anything, right? That can apply to um, someone telling you you're not allowed to have a certain kind of job because you're a Christian. Well, maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. But if they're wrong and you are obeying their statement in order not to sin, well, then you're sinning by doing that because you are now along with them adding instructions to God's word that God does not give you. So it's really important that with this, and this is where we get to this last clause, it says requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And that is a direct shot across the bow at Roman Catholicism. Yes. So Roman Catholicism argues that you have to have an implicit faith, which means that even if you think something is wrong, you just have to believe the church. So this whole sexual scandal that's going on with with the the diocese in Pennsylvania and the accusations against the pope all of these things that are going on Roman Catholics are supposed to just have a blind and absolute obedience to the papal situation um whether they think it's contradictory what well, they're not allowed to think otherwise and to do so for them Um, is contrary to the Roman Catholic system. And so even something like that, you know, sometimes we think my sister is Roman Catholic and um, sometimes we want to think that like, well, there's a neutrality to what she's doing. There's a neutrality because, you know, she's trying to live a godly life. She reads her Bible and, um, you know, she believes the Pope, but like she doesn't, you know, she doesn't buy into it all that much. But the fact that she holds that implicit faith is inherently and intrinsically sinful. Because it is this destroying of the liberty of conscience to not know what God has commanded and what God right. has forbidden. And then and by sort of contrast, what God has allowed us as Christians to enjoy and to use our liberty for.
1: And if you don't know the scriptures well, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for your conscience to be bound by any number of other things. Right. Especially people that just sound good. They're playing people mm-hmm. that are very articulate. They'll make strong cases for, I would say, preferences that should exist in Christian liberty, but they're going to make the case that this thing is sinful. And it's easy to be taken by this kind of mellifluous talk that provides some kind of good argumentation that may be more a matter of opinion than it certainly is the scriptures. And while you were speaking about that, I was really struck by, we get that classic example really from Peter who when he receives this vision of all these animals coming down the sheet, even he's like, no, God forbid, like I've never eaten any clean animal. And God's like, let's do this two more times. So I can really get it through your head that do not call unclean what I have made clean. And that's basically what we're saying here is don't let anybody tell you that. And the only reason and the only way you're going to know is if you are actually well versed in the scriptures enough to be able to discern. So here's yet another Place where we find ourselves needing to invest in, again, like the full counsel of God so that we can understand and live holy lives. Like you said, we're freed up because we don't have to worry about sin or death anymore. We don't have to worry about pleasing God or taking on some kind of meritorious action so that we can earn our salvation. All that's done in Christ Jesus. So it does free us up now to pursue holiness. And part of that pursuit is being in the scriptures, marinating in the scriptures in such a way that it becomes secondhand for us to discern that which is required and that which is not.
0: Right. And, you know, this is probably going to ruffle a little bit of feathers, and I hope it does, is sometimes there's this understanding of Galatians where, um, or, or the statements in Colossians about the new moons and Sabbath festivals where people think, well, it's okay for me to celebrate Passover if I want. As long as I recognize it's not spiritually significant and it's not, um, it's not necessary that I have the freedom to do that. But the fact is that participating in and submitting yourself to religious ceremonies and returning to the ceremonial law is is not something that a Christian has liberty to do. And right. that that's part of this this section here, is that we're freed from the yoke of the ceremonial law. And so to, to go back to those things, to submit yourself again to those laws, is to ignore the fact that those were typological things pointing to Christ. And thus, to go back to them is to sort of ignore that. Michael Horton uses the example of You know, Once the movie comes out, who goes back and watches the trailer? Well, in our world, maybe you do for other reasons. You might go back to see because sometimes the trailer doesn't actually match up with what's going on in the movie. And so you go back to compare it. But what he's saying is like, all right, the movie comes out. You've seen the movie. Why would you go back and watch the trailer as though that's somehow the movie itself? Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful because – the freedom that we have is not a not an absolute freedom we don't have an absolute freedom to do whatever we wish but it's a freedom from certain things and to certain things and that's really important
1: yeah i mean i would say it's as extreme as being given in heaven like the beatific vision and then being like well i'd really like to go back to just living by faith Right. You know, it's it's that extreme. And of course, like we've already mentioned the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, but by way of example, I mean, that council was really seeking to answer practical questions faced by the early Christians as they wrestled with how to enjoy, enjoy freedom from the Mosaic administration without becoming stumbling blocks to the Jewish people. So they wanted to enjoy, like to your point, the fact that there's, there's something that had been completed on their behalf. And so why go back? to the lesser thing. I mean, we've been talking about the fact that so much of this is understanding the scriptures well, having good scriptural resources for study and for theology. And I feel like there should be something that we could recommend here for people to be able to use that would be really good for study. Do you have anything to that effect,
0: Tony? I do and this is very exciting so we mentioned last week we um, we had a sort of surprise for this week and what we have surprise. is we're very excited to be able to talk about the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible so this is a new resource from uh, Zondervan it's using the the most up to date most recent translation of the NIV um, the 2011 version and it's uh, general editors D.A. Carson who is um, a pretty world-class New Testament scholar. I mean, he's, sure. he's kind of the authority on all things Greek. He wrote a huge commentary on um, the Gospel of John, and he really is a world-class New Testament scholar. So it, this, this resource is really cool because rather than just being sort of a normal kind of study Bible that has, you know, like regular commentary style notes, it has those, but it also has some significant long-form articles um, written by scholars you'd recognize, like you know, D. A. Carson, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung has an excellent article on sin. Um, there's all sorts from I think there's 28 full length articles yes. throughout the, the the Bible, and it's really a a great resource.
1: And I think this is a great Bible for both the experienced theologian and the unexperienced. There's really yeah. a little bit of everything because it's a really wonderful compendium. Of all kinds of really great knowledge and expertise. So it's it's a very beautiful printing. It, it's all in color. And so we would encourage everybody to go out to www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com, where you can learn a little bit more about the Bible itself and also read three of these 28 articles for free, get a real sense for the depth and the work, just the beauty that's going on in this particular volume.
0: Yeah. And it, as I said, like it's just a really good resource because one of the things that I think people fail to see and maybe not our audience as much, I think the people I've interacted with in our audience, but some of the people maybe that our audience is interacting with, they sort of fail to see the grand sweep of the Bible. Yes, The the big story of the scripture. And one of those free articles that they have on the website is an article about kind of the big story of the scriptures. So if you have like a friend who's a new Christian and you want to kind of orient them to the way that the Bible does theology, this sort of... Um, pan-canonical look at the, the theological positions of the Bible, this is really a great resource. So we've actually set up a contest. If you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, and we're giving away six of these uh, six. Bibles. And it's not just like the the uh, hardcover version. It's like the nice leather-bound version of it. So these are, these are beautiful Bibles. It's beautiful craftsmanship. Um, Zondervan has like this special, I've read a little bit about it. We'll try to talk about it in future episodes, but they have this special font that they've developed that's designed to reduce eye strain. So you can read the Bible for longer without having the just physical tiredness in your eyes. So they really are trying to get people into the scriptures and then helping people to understand the scriptures. So it's, it's a huge resource. Um, I'm really, really pleased to be recommending it.
1: Who doesn't want to read the Bible for longer without eye strain? Great.
0: It's, it's great. Awesome. Can,
1: can I say that this Bible is banging? Is that?
0: Uh, I think so. You can be um. a you can be a Bible banger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll... Isn't it Bible thumper though?
1: Yeah, it is. But I kind of liked Bible banger. The better. alliteration is good. Yeah, it's ve- it's very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so
0: check it out, www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com, and then reformbrotherhood.com slash contest to enter for your chance to win. We're going to run this contest all the way through the end of October, and we're going to draw and announce the winners in our first episode in November. So you've got lots of time to enter, but I wouldn't wait, because you'll forget, and then you'll miss your chance.
1: Mm. Get on it.
0: Get on it. Yeah. So, Jesse... Back to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's do it. So why don't you go ahead and read uh, Article 3 for me.
1: They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish, uh, cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life.
0: Awesome. And then I'm going to go ahead and read um, probably just the beginning here of uh, article or uh, paragraph four. It says, and because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually uphold and preserve one another, they who upon the pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. So these two things together, I think are a good way to sort of wrap out and sort of finish out our discussion is article three here. Um, paragraph three here is what we are driving at, right? We're free from all these things, but right. the purpose of our freedom and y- is unity with Christ and the living and the sanctifying life of a Christian. So we are free from these things, not free to sin, but free from sin. And because we're free from sin, we're now free to pursue holiness. I mean, we've talked about Tulian in the past, but this is where he goes off the rails right. as he starts to take this antinomian turn where all of a sudden sin is not a big deal to him. It's he he'll talk about it like as a big deal, but then when you really boil down his theology, the s- sin doesn't have any real impact in his life, in his theology. But what this is saying is that the freedom we have as Christians should not only enable us, but should drive us to holiness. That's the purpose of it. The end of Christian liberty is that we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And to me, that's the piece that's missing in most reformed conversations or young reformed restless conversations about Christian liberty is that my freedom to drink alcohol is there in order that I might live and serve the Lord with fear right. and in holiness and righteousness. So unless we're making that connection and we're taking that step and understanding how that is, then we're missing the, the point entirely.
1: There's this unhealthy desire to pit against each other, the law and the freedom. Right. In which case we're kind of saying that not that they're conflated, but one certainly does lead to the other. It impacts the other. And so there's always going to be error when we move to one extreme or the other. I mean i also to kind of piggyback on what you're saying see like there's a lack or this gap in the conversation of this categorical distinction between the essence of freedom and the exercise of freedom and i think it's vitally important to recognize that there is a difference between the essence of christian liberty and the exercise of christian liberty so while the essence of liberty must never be sacrificed There will be times when the exercise of liberty will be regularly sacrificed by mature believers. And making that correct distinction is important because Christian liberty is an internal thing. It belongs to the mind and the conscience like we're seeing here. It has direct reference to God. The use of Christian liberty is an external thing and it belongs to conduct and it has a reference to man. So yeah. no consideration should prevail upon us to give up, so that we give up the essence of our liberty. But there's going to be many times when there's going to be a consideration that should induce us to forego the practical assertion or display of our liberty. So what I see missing in this conversation is that Christian liberty does not need to be actualized to be real. So like, in right. other words, you do not need to exercise your liberty to enjoy it. And you should always be looking for what is the loving thing to do in this particular situation. And what I see, you know, like somebody like Tullian falling into this trap of is, is like you said, the very thing of making the law to mean nothing and thinking that what really freedom means is to get rid of it altogether. When really freedom is to embrace it because the only free man is the one who's been released from sin by Christ.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so I want to, I want to close this conversation with two thoughts is the first is that as a Christian, we have to be striving for and pursuing holiness at every moment and every second. And that involves, in some cases, exercising our freedom in Christ. Right. So, like you said, Freedom doesn 't have to be actualized the act of the act that could be possible because of freedom does not have to be actualized in order for freedom to exist. So the fact that I can drink alcohol doesn 't mean that I must drink alcohol right and, and that 's important because sometimes in some of the circles we run in, there is this kind of idea like, oh well, if you don 't drink alcohol then you must not really understand your liberty in Christ. You must right. not really enjoy liberty in Christ if you're not, you know, you're not smoking cigars and stuff. And that's another type of slavery, right? Exactly. It's just a different kind of law. And, and that's, that's it is it's so easy to convert freedom into law if you're not careful. Mm, well said. And the second thing that I wanted to, to close this out with is we would be foolish to think that there are not real threats to our liberty within the reformed camp. So I want to read a little bit of a, it's a transcript of a sermon from John MacArthur. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, because his sermons are like an hour long, but it's a, it's a sermon that's essentially all about alcohol and about, about whether or not Christians can drink alcohol. So this is probably about 40% of the way down, maybe 50% of the way down. We'll put the link in the show notes. He says, um, furthermore, as we will see alcoholic fermented beverages in ancient time, ancient times, were designed to produce safety, not harm. They were designed to produce and protect life, not to produce death. How is this the case? Well, wine was low in alcohol content. The typical family vineyard that you wouldn't find in ancient times, biblical times, Old Testament, and New Testament. This would be growing a lot of grapes. A family would have some kind of jar, and they would store the fruit of the grapes in there. For the best I can tell from looking at history, two to three days, two or three days, two to four percent alcohol content. Well, the first thing that I think is really funny is... Two to four percent alcohol content is about what you get in the average beer right now. So, <laughs> the point right. that he's making is that alcohol is so much stronger now, and it's so much more intoxicating. And then he he makes this point that it's two to four alcohol, two to four percent alcohol content. But then going up in previously in the sermon a little bit, he's talking about how alcoholic beverages in the Old Testament and New Testament are not the same as alcoholic beverages in uh, our time. And the reason he's doing this is because he's going to come to the conclusion that no one should be drinking alcohol, particularly in America, because alcohol and the alcohol industry is designed to bring about intoxication and death. And so he imposes this law that we must not drink alcohol because of this intent behind the producers of the alcohol. Now, maybe your conscience tells you, you can't participate in sort of the corrupt industry of alcohol. Okay. That's fine. That's a different equation, but to come to the conclusion that we cannot drink alcohol at all, he has to go through these convoluted ways to explain why alcohol in the old Testament wasn't as alcoholic as alcohol in the new Testament without even realizing that it it was what he's talking about 2 to 4% is a little bit less than a moderate IPA or a right. moderate uh, ale of some sort i had a beer while we were drinking this podcast that is 5% alcohol right i drank this over the course of an hour i feel nothing at all right that doesn't mean that you can't get you know can't get buzzed off 5% alcohol but the fact is that what he's talking about is just not reality And so we have to be cautious because some of these voices that we read, some of these voices we listen to are making these arguments and seeking to infringe on Christian liberty. And like I said, if the farthest we go is to push back against John MacArthur and say, listen, Johnny boy, I can have a beer if I want to. We've totally missed the point. But what John MacArthur and others who advocate this kind of theology are saying is, Is basically that even though Christ has given you the freedom to consume alcohol for this other unbiblical reason, it's a sin. It's a sin for you because reasons that are not given in the Bible. And like I said earlier, to obey that is sin. To be obedient and to submit to that kind of extra biblical, anti-biblical reasoning is sin. So at the same time, though, it would not be charitable or, or in accord with Christian love for me to sit down at dinner with John MacArthur and crack open a glass of a, 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 you know, a can of beer or to order a wine with dinner because his conscience is sensitive. So in that instance, I can, and probably should, I'm not going to say must, but I can, and probably should recognize that in order to pursue peace with my brother, I should just exercise my freedom in the potential sense, right? I'm not saying that's a law. Everyone needs to make their own decision. But for me, it's not wise for me to do that. And t- whatever doesn't proceed from faith, and I think we could say whatever doesn't proceed from wisdom, for me is sin. So it's not a simple discussion. It's not, this isn't about a list of cans and a list of can and about the list of cans being bigger than the list of can That's not what freedom is. Freedom is, and this comes back to what we see in, in Galatians, right? Freedom is the ability to love one another and serve one another and to pursue holiness and righteousness in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's that's what we need to remember in these conversations.
1: Well said. That's why Christian liberty is really a hallmark of those who are growing in spiritual maturity rather than those who are immature and just make it about a list of things that you can do and things that you can't do. It's based as if already in Christ we are free but we do not yet live in a world that can cope with our freedom. And so we have to be careful. We have to be discerning. And that does take work. Uh, I, would, I think because we've gone several hours probably in our podcasting without quoting Martin Luther, I want to at least quote him because of what he said about this. And I think because he gets it so right. And this is his words in The Freedom of the Christian Man. He summarizes it, it this way. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word to end on. So, Jesse, how would someone get a hold of us if they wanted to call in and uh, tell me that I am wrong about not having a beer with John MacArthur?
1: <laughs> First, I'd like to say it would be funny if you cracked open a beer with John MacArthur. Yeah. But probably since we're saying the rule of love should be the thing that dictates how we exercise our freedom there. I certainly agree with you, but if you'd like to call and debate with Tony about that very point, the best thing to do is to leave us a voicemail by calling 607-444-2767. Bros. If you have $20.3 million that you'd like to send to us, (laughs) you can just email us. That's totally fine. We'd be happy to respond to your email, but you could also leave a voicemail. I'd be happy if like somebody like the former, I don't know, like treasury secretary of Ghana wanted to leave us a voicemail.
0: That'd be pretty awesome.
1: That would be great as well. I'd be happy to receive that voicemail.
0: Yeah. I think probably we're going to be lucky if we get some voicemails from Matt Butts, (laughs) who's like the former, (laughs) I don't know, former press secretary of his household. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. And also we recently opened up a Facebook group called the Society of Reformed People, which is a Facebook group for anyone who wants to join it that's Reformed, but especially for people who listen to uh, Society of Reform podcasts or shows. So um, almost all of the people who are involved in the shows are in that group. We would love to interact with you um, on a kind of a real-time or semi-real-time basis. Voicemails are great, but you send us a voicemail and we get back to it like a month later. That's not a great back and forth. But if you want something a little more dynamic, then join up with that group and start uh, asking questions and starting conversations conversations. conversations.
1: Speaking of which, if you listening to our voices or maybe just started or become aware of our particular podcast, you may notice in the beginning, we always say we're part of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. But if you'd like other content that's totally biblical, that's really inspiring, that's challenging to listen to, go to reformpodcasts.com and take a listen to these other quality podcasts that are part of this network. You won't be disappointed. It's really great content.
0: Yeah, according to Christ, and I'm not just saying this because they're on our network and it's good for ratings.
1: Contractually uh, obligated.
0: According to Christ is probably the best, like actual Reformed Baptist podcast that's on the internet right now, um, and I, I mean that from every possible way. It's the best produced. It's the the best theologically. Um, informationally like it's good baptist theology and um, the guys over there they just do a good job of really distilling the some complex things down Um, i had no idea what was going on with 1689 federal theology uh, until i listened to their show where they kind of explained it Um, and then they just did an episode on theonomy that was just phenomenal it was awesome i was like all those theonomists are gonna be so mad and i was like (laughs) and i love that they're gonna be mad
1: (laughs) And I presume when you mean the 1689 Federalists that they explained it, that you mean they killed it.
0: They did. It was pretty awesome. It's good. Everybody should check that out. Yeah. So uh, we'll stop with this endless parade of commercials. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood.